Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. And boy, are we lost in some science of various descriptions this week. Uh, on this week's show, Claire, I believe, has a special story for us. Claire, who are you talking to and what are they doing? Well, Chris, um, on the show this week, we have a special guest, Dr. Nicholas Kirkwood from the um, Centre of Excellence in Exiton Science. Um, normally, their remit is to create incredibly efficient solar cells um, for your solar panels. But last year, they were tapped on the shoulder by the Australian government and said, we need some help to make, uh, to make COVID-19 testing kits, um, a component part of COVID-19 testing kits that includes magnetic nanoparticles. So can you just like, you know, keep doing what you're doing with the research, but also create um, some of these nanoparticles for us. So he's going to take us on the journey that has been the last year where um, solar cell scientists um, refocus their energies and their chemistry to um, bring us, um, you know, one step closer to getting us out of uh, this COVID pandemic. Great. And will we find out what an exiton is, Claire, in this story? No, you're going to have to look that up yourself. This story is not about exitons. Ah. (laughs) But you should be excited. I I will be be excited on it. On it. Yeah, great. But yes. Okay, so tiny magnets, how do they work? We will find out. Meanwhile, Stu, what have you got for us? Um, I, I, you know, I thought Exiton was a character on Mork and Mindy. Um, maybe I'm remembering his name wrong. But um, <laughs> on the subject of COVID testing, I was just going to have a bit of a talk about COVID symptoms. And we're actually coming into a, a symptomatic season of the year where a lot of people are going to get uh, symptoms for various reasons, which they don't necessarily get at other times of year. It's coming into hay fever season. And I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of symptoms you might be uh, experiencing, which may be um, symptoms of COVID or maybe not, and why it's probably a good idea to get tested anyway, even if you think you are just suffering your regular hay fever, because, you know, some of those symptoms of other things can still spread COVID, which is something we should all be thinking about as we uh, go into the spring and into the summer as well. Well, as someone who gets very severe fever, I am, of course, looking forward to getting my daily COVID test uh, <laughs> for the next three months or so. Um, well, look, it sounds like we have the all COVID testing episode today. Who would have thought? But uh, look, let's hope that we are positive for science but negative for deadly diseases. Yep. Okay, on with the show. Ah, great. Positive for science. Positive for science (laughs) and negative (laughs) for deadly disease. 
Okay, so I have a riddle for you. What do solar cells and COVID-19 testing kits have in common? Now, not many people will be able to answer this one, except possibly our guest on the show this week, Dr. Nicholas Kirkwood from the Centre of Excellence in Exiton Science at the University of Melbourne. Because while the rest of us have been stuck in lockdown, Nick and his colleagues, who normally research how to create the most efficient solar cells, have been even busier over the past year developing ways to make components for COVID-19 testing kits all locally. So, Nick, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. And can I just say thank you for all the hard work throughout the last year. Thank you. (laughs) But obviously my first question has to be the riddle. What do solar cells and COVID-19 testing kits have in common? Well, broadly, we're making them using the same experiences and the same skills in the same lab. So our research prior to COVID-19 hitting Australia, so rewinding back to January 2020, was really focused around using nanoparticles. So that's you know tiny particles of various materials. And these are really small. So you can fit mm. maybe a thousand or more nanoparticles along the width of a human hair. So wow. really, really tiny materials that we can grow in our chemistry lab. And we were using these to make next generation solar cells, uh, solar mm. windows, all sorts of really interesting um, applications that, that kind of leverage the unique properties that you get when you make nanomaterials. When COVID hit, though, I know everything changed for research science because we got locked out of university. Mm-hmm. Um, we were told, in, unless you're working on a, a project relating to COVID directly, you, you can't come in and do research. As chance would have it, um, the government was at the same time desperately looking for people to make components of COVID test kits in right. Australia. The reason being that they were afraid um, that international supply chains might dry up for mm. various things that are required to do COVID tests or that just the prices might go up a lot. And one of the things it turns out that they use in COVID test kits, magnetic nanoparticles. Um, this was news to me at the time, but we um, got a call from the government asking if we'd be able to help making a local supply of them. And my boss is kind of a we-can-do-it guy. And so he said <laughs> Love yes. that. <laughs> which means, well, by the end of that day, we were on a Zoom call together trying to figure out um, how we could use what we knew to make these types of materials. And we pretty quickly realized that we had all of the the skills and equipment required to um, at least test it on a lab scale. Right. So pretty much the government calls you up and orders off the menu, says, I don't actually want the fish of the day. I want you to go back and make a roast. You don't know how to make a roast. You've just got the component parts. You're like, all right, I'll just make this up. Yeah. So we, we, I mean, we, we did have some experience making uh, magnetic nanomaterials in our lab, um, so it wasn't completely um, uh, a new meal for us, so to speak. Um, it, so, yeah, we, we were able to use a lot of the experience that we had from years of working with nanoparticles and some nan- magnetic nanoparticles um, in order to, to really quickly kind of figure out what we needed to make and how we could make it. What part of the COVID-19 testing kit are the magnetic particles needed for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it turns out that, so I think a lot of us, um, certainly I have had many COVID tests by this point, and the, the main thing we all remember is that they stick a swab up our nose, which is oh, really yeah. not very comfortable. Yeah, But the um, what they do actually, the, the once they've 
extracted the back of your throat with this swab is uh, run what's called a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction test on it. And what that test does is it looks for COVID RNA, so RNA being the genetic material um, that the virus uses. And it turns out in order to actually run a PCR test to to see if there's any COVID RNA in in the back of your throat, um, you first have to purify um, the swab material because what's on that swab when they collect it from the back of your throat you can imagine there's a whole bunch of junk (laughs) in there yeah you know all sorts of biological material that you um uh actually gunks up the the machine let's say that that runs the the covid test so in order to separate all of the rna from the covid and actually a lot of other nucleic acids like dna from from Mm. your cells they use uh magnetic nanoparticles and Basically, you can attach the RNA and DNA from your swab taken from your throat. Uh, You can attach magnetic nanoparticles onto the RNA and DNA. And then just by kind of waving a magnet and dragging them wherever you want them, you can extract them from the rest of the material. Right. So it's something as physical as you just need to attach a magnetic strip to the genetic component of the virus and then just move it to a separate part physically move it away from all the other stuff pretty much yeah i mean you you just need a way of separating it out Um, Mm. and it turns out that you can yeah hoover up all of the rna with a a bunch of magnetic nanoparticles Um, they're so tiny that they can readily you know be mixed in with the rest of the swab solution and then you can just collect them all with a magnet Um, and it turns out that attaching and detaching the RNA from the uh, magnetic nanoparticles um, is something that it's relatively easy to do if you've made the particles correctly. I'd say there's there's other ways of doing it. Um, this is just a really, really nice way to do it. It's really quick. Mm. Um, you don't need any fancy equipment. You just need like magnets and some plastic vials. And um, that's really attractive because it speeds up the testing process and it makes it really affordable and you can do it in, in labs that don't have, you know, fancy centrifuges and other sorts of things. That's what we want to hear. That sounds fantastic. I'm also really curious about, I guess, the process that you went through in the initial stages after you got the call from the government, what then happened for you to sort of, you know, get to the point of developing the carbon nanoparticles? Yeah, it was a pretty crazy time. We we had a couple of frantic Zoom meetings straight away um, with all of the people that we knew within our, our lab and our, our centre who had experience with these types of magnetic materials. Um, and we pretty much within 24 hours had a couple of approaches that we knew might work. And then we got uh, permission to get back into our lab. So we uh, basically unlocked the doors to an abandoned chemistry building, <laughs> um, the University of Melbourne, and, and then spent the next two or three weeks um, making lots and lots of batches using a couple of different approaches of magnetic nanoparticles. Um, And then luckily we had been put in contact with a a test kit company in Sydney. And so one of the things we were doing right off the bat was sending off um, batches of um, prototype magnetic nanoparticles Mm. and they would test them in in a, a COVID test situation and check whether they actually work or not. What were you finding? So we found pretty quickly a couple of approaches that worked better than others. So um, just various um, different chemical methods you can use to make uh, magnetic nanoparticles. So the the actual material that we're trying to make here is magnetite. It's the same thing that you use in fridge magnets. 
But for example, if you get the chemistry a little bit off, then you can make a different form of material called maghemite. That's what they used to use in cassette tapes, if anyone remembers what those are. <laughs> and it, it turns out that, that that material, while it's also magnetic, is, is less magnetic and it, so it's not as desirable. So just little things like this, we were trying to figure out, you know, well, which is the best form, magnetic form to use. And, and we found out that we wanted to be using magnetite and then, um, you know, how big should the particles be? You know, how, how um, do we need to put anything on the surface to help them stick to the RNA? These kinds of questions. Any, you know, hashtag fails in the lab or like what <laughs> any, any just like moments where you're like this is just not working, we're never going to get there? Yeah, we had actually a whole bunch of dead ends in this project where we would kind of send off some samples and get some positive ish results and then follow that and just nothing would improve and then another we'd have a team typically of two or three people working in the lab at any given point in time and try and split up tasks and someone would be working on plan a someone else on plan b (laughs) someone else on plan c and and it turned out that every time we would have a plan that suddenly when one failed another one suddenly got oh this is even better and so we just kind of kept plugging away at it and within uh, a couple of weeks um, we had one approach in particular that was looking really promising. Did you then scale up that approach? Yeah, so good question. The the, the real challenge, as it turned out, once we had a chemistry uh, to make the nanoparticles and, and proving that they were working on a lab scale is actually then realising that they needed to do a lot of COVID tests in Australia. And <laughs> actually, we still need to do a lot of COVID tests yeah. even more than ever before. Yeah. And to give you a rough idea of the scale, you know, a typical reaction we, we use in the lab, we would make something like maybe a gram of magnetic nanoparticles. And we were kind of figuring out that we would be needing to make something like 500 grams um, every week for them to run 100,000 test COVID tests every week. And if we know so, how many COVID tests are happening, you know, I guess just in New South Wales or just in Victoria every day, um, yeah, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds yeah. of thousands, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's hundreds of grams of material. And as I said, in our lab, we were really only equipped to be making, you know, one gram batches, uh, which is just not feasible then to, to um, meet that scale. So we, we had to very quickly ring around and try and find some local industry who would be able to help us scale up the process. And uh, luckily, we've found a couple of um, companies, uh, one in particular called Scaled Organics, who were really keen to help out. Um, they made available to us some um, giant reactors that they have, which are specifically for trying to scale up chemical reactions and you know get a proof of principle working at scale. Have you ever called up a large-scale industrial chem- chemical company and said, you got any massive reactors lying around I could make some magnetic carbon nanoparticles in? <laughs> <laughs> well, prior to this, we definitely hadn't had tried to do that. Um, now we know how to do it, which is exactly how you just said. You ring them up and you ask around until someone says yes. Um, we certainly had a lot of people say no before we found someone who said yes. Um, but, it, you know, it was a really amazing experience. We were um, trained on how to use these giant reactors. Everything is different. You Instead of, you know, using a tiny little pipette to transfer a small amount of liquid, you're now pouring things out of big, you know, massive glassware that you need two people to hold. The safety is obviously something you have to be really considerate of, wearing, you know, full um, gas masks in order to protect yourself against chemical vapours. One of the 
problems we encountered was after we made our first batch um, at a very large scale, we had a, about a 70 liter reaction going, I think we kind of realized, oh, hang on, where are we going to put all of this um, once we've made it? And we had to run down to Bunnings and buy a whole bunch of buckets from Bunnings in order to actually like store the product in, in something because we're used to in our lab just keeping our product in tiny little vials. Um, I'm pretty sure that uh, Bunnings employees were a little bit confused that why there are a whole bunch of nerdy scientists running around Bunnings in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> trying to buy as many buckets as possible. But um, obviously as we got better and better at it, um, we figured out better ways and we're getting tips from you know, the industry partners and on how to how to do these scale up things um, without having to use Bunnings equipment. But yeah. Now Nick, one year on, I guess it's been, or maybe even more, how is the project going? What what does the future look like? Um yeah, so a year on, we are still making them. The project is still going along. Uh, we have had to pivot a few times. Every time we we hit a roadblock, we obviously have to then um, stop and think and, and uh, troubleshoot what's going wrong is you know typical examples would be we've scaled something up but then there's a, a slight change in the product once we've scaled it up and then we have to go back and try and solve that and so we've had to do this a bunch of times but we're now at a point where we can make enough of these uh, magnetic nanoparticles in a reaction to service tens of thousands of COVID tests they work which is obviously very important <laughs> Uh, so the kind of the research phase of the project is is really closing off, and we're now in in a an area of trying to work with uh, partners to figure out if this is now commercially possible. So can they start to produce these at a commercial scale and sell them and or buy them, as it were? So as part of the project, I understand you're also working with um, the synchrotron in in Melbourne. Um, how how are they involved? Um, yeah, so one of the, the problems we faced at, uh, was that we realised that some of our um, magnetic nanoparticle products were slowly turning brown over time and the performance was degrading. And we obviously didn't want to be providing something um, to a professional COVID testing kit company that was changing colour over time, certainly not if it was degrading in performance as well. And we had the suspicion that that meant that the crystal structure of the nanoparticles was changing from uh, magnetite, which is the fridge magnet material, to maghemite, which is our cassette tape material. Mm. And it's actually, as it turns out, it's really, really hard to tell the difference between these two forms of iron oxide. They're, they're both very, very similar. And um, one of the few places that you can actually go to to distinguish between them is um, what's called X-ray absorption spectroscopy at a synchrotron and luckily for us there was a synchrotron in Melbourne and they were also really really keen at the time to be working on anything to do with COVID because like us that was their ticket to get back into doing research <laughs> so we had this amazing kind of um, coincidence that uh, we had a problem we needed to solve and they had a tool to solve it and so we uh, sent some samples to the synchrotron and actually later on went down there ourselves to do a whole bunch of research and were able to find uh, not only why that was happening, why some of our samples were coming out uh, brown and others weren't, uh, but also to fix the problem, which is um, amazing. And hopefully we'll actually also get a scientific publication out of that, which is a nice little outcome as well. Can I just say that sounds like incredible synchronicity? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, hear your story about this incredible uh, scientific innovation and collaboration across so many different scientific organisations as well out of um, this necessity in the pandemic. So a big thank you to you and your colleagues for stepping up, um, getting back into the lab um, and contributing to science to help us get one step closer to getting out of this pandemic. Thank you. Yep, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. We are just about to come into spring again and for a lot of people those words may conjure a dark cloud just as the sky seems to be clearing up for everyone else uh spring heralds the arrival of an annual visitor for many people which is seasonal allergic rhinitis better known to most people as hay fever due to its association with flowering grasses grasses being the source of hay. Um, weirdly, though, hay fever doesn't give you a fever. So mm. it's it's not even... What's a, the go there? It's not even a clever name. It's it's related to hay, but there is no fever. Um, it does not oh, give so you fever. You'll be busting cabin fever. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, now, some people might blame things like wattle trees. You'll see a lot of wattle trees blooming uh, as we come into spring, depending where you're in Australia. But being that there's you know, around about a thousand species of wattles in Australia, there's pretty much always a wattle tree flowering, um, depending where you are. They're, they're flowering all the time. And wattle trees are insect-pollinated plants, so they don't produce a lot of airborne pollen. So while the wattle trees may be the most visually obvious plant in flower, it's actually the grass flowers, the invisible green grass flowers producing airborne pollen... Uh, which are causing most of the problems for people. Right. So the problem of hay fever presents a particular issue right now for people around the world in that they're being encouraged to get tested for COVID-19 if they experience any symptoms. And this is something that government health messaging is really pushing out. Get tested if you've got any symptoms. Just be better to be safe than sorry. Um, Now, according to research on thousands of COVID patients and actually tens of thousands of COVID patients, the uh, the symptom of nasal congestion is present in less than 5% of patients. So most people, the vast majority of people with COVID do not get nasal congestion uh, as a symptom of COVID. The most common symptom being a fever and the dry cough. Now, as I said, hay fever doesn't give you a fever. So... If you've got a runny nose and no fever, chances are it's not um, COVID. So I would still say, though, probably you still should get tested if you have persistent symptoms, especially if you've never had hay fever before, because that could be a warning sign. Um, So the dry cough is a symptom which is apparently very distinctive. People are coughing up phlegm. It's unlikely to be COVID-19 as well, although... As people have pointed out, the Delta variant is producing different symptoms in some people. So 
there there is still a sort of grey area of what is a COVID symptom and what isn't. But the fever itself seems to be a major um, sort of blanket symptom that uh, most people get. Uh, but for people who annually experience hay fever, chances are they're well aware of how those symptoms feel and they're less likely to go in for testing because they can just say, oh, it's my usual hay fever. Um, now, one of the issues with that assumption is, according to meta-analysis published in December last year, around 17% of cases with COVID may be asymptomatic. So they may not be showing COVID symptoms. That's, that's, mm. that's one in five cases almost. Um, and although transmission is reduced by having no symptoms, the fact that hay fever induces sneezing means that you could easily transmit COVID virus particles from your hay fever symptoms without showing any symptoms of COVID. So it is still worth, right. if you're sneezing all over the place, to go and get tested because a single sneeze can spread, uh, you know, virus-carrying droplets up to two metres, which is more than the distancing measures that people are being told to follow. So 1.5 metres, obviously two metres is further than that, so you can still come in contact with those particles. Um, I mean, it sounds like, you know, particularly, I guess, if you're in an area where there are known outbreaks or, you know, transmission, this kind of stuff, and it's something that a lot of Australia is currently in, unfortunately. But if you're in a situation where there isn't, much virus around and you start sneezing should you assume that you have the virus and you're spreading it well no but you should you know you should probably especially if you know that you get hay fever on an annual basis it it's probably uh and and if you know that you haven't been in contact with anyone who's got the virus and you haven't been anywhere near an exposure site uh it, it it's probably not urgent but it's still probably worth it for the peace of mind but if you have been near exposure sites I think the idea that one in five people could be not showing COVID symptoms, and I don't know where the Venn diagram of those people and hay fever sufferers is, but if you've got hay fever and, and you may have the virus, you may be spreading that virus without showing it. So I just think it is worth it. It's not like it costs you any money. Uh, a lot of people are locked down anyway. One of the reasons to leave the house is to go and get tested. So, you know... You could you could double up, get your exercise, go get a test, go back home, and lock yourself down again until you can, until you can uh, say that you're COVID free. And and the thing is, if you've if you've got hay fever and you've had a had a COVID test, it's just for your own peace of mind more than anything else. But it, you know, it, there is that risk that you could be spreading it, regardless of whether you feel like you've you've got the virus or not. It's going to spread from those sneezes. Um, one of the things that people are being advised to do at the moment is to sneeze into their elbow, into the crook of their elbow, um, which will catch those uh, virus particles. And a lot, some, some people sort of go, oh, that's really gross. But it's a lot less gross than sneezing into your hands and catching all those virus particles in your hands True. and all the snot. And then what do you do with that? You know, basically what the, the, the idea is that you'll sneeze into your elbow. You don't go around touching things with the inside of your elbow very often. So it's a safe place to put them. You don't have to touch it with your hands. You're not going to touch other people with that elbow. So it, it does seem like a reasonable thing. And then, you know, wash your clothes at the end of the day. If you think that is too gross, sneeze into a tissue Get rid of the tissue, wash your hands. That's kind of uh, the option 
at that you know if if, if you think that sneezing your elbow is too gross to uh to to think about um one of the other things about this testing is it's very difficult to pinpoint how many people are truly asymptomatic with COVID because they're much less likely to get tested if they don't feel they've got any symptoms. And a lot of people mm. downplay any mild symptoms they have because, they, oh, no, 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 they mm. don't want to think about it. They don't want to go get tested. They don't want to make a big deal. So a, a mild sore throat or a mild achy, painy period uh, may not lead people to go and get tested. So we may not really know how many people are asymptomatic for sure uh, unless they develop those proper symptoms and then present to a medical professional and then they'll get tested anyway because anyone who's presenting to hospital gets tested at the moment regardless of what they're in there for. Um, I did want to touch quickly on something else that's making uh, headlines in some papers and media at the moment is the Delta variant seems to be more likely to infect younger people and children. Um, but it's also more likely to affect people across all age groups. So it's really hard to say if the Delta variant's more affecting children or if it's just affecting everyone more because the case numbers are really low. So it's a new thing. It's hard to tell with this sort of thing. So no conclusive data has been published about whether the Delta variant is more dangerous to children specifically. But one thing that parents could do is take any symptoms seriously. Now, the thing about allergies like hay fever, coming back to hay fever, is that they can develop at any age. You're not necessarily born with hay fever. You may develop that allergic reaction later on. So children who haven't had hay fever before may develop hay fever because of the time of year. So we're coming into a time of year. The other thing is when you move from different parts of the country, you may be exposed to different plant species, which you suddenly find that you're allergic to. So sudden development of of hay fever symptoms in children, especially at the moment, it's probably a good reason to go and get those kids tested. Um, The sneezing itself is a first sign of defense of our immune system. So before things can stick around and cause more serious problems, our body tries to physically remove it. That's why we sneeze in the first place. It's trying to remove foreign objects. So that could be bacteria. People sneeze when they're exposed to smoke um, and in allergic individuals various other things like dust or pollen but it's the body trying to get rid of something it's identified as not belonging up your nose so it's your body trying to do the right thing um so uh these differences in response to various infections including common cold and flu viruses um can be more or less severe depending on each person so the same virus can affect people differently or the same bacteria. It just depends on that individual's immune response. And this is the uh, what they call the innate immune response, is the body's recognising, here's a foreign object, let's get rid of it. And that's you know part of what triggers those sneezes. And that might apply to the SARS-CoV-2 virus as well, which is why people who've been in contact with a known case are asked to isolate and get tested, even if they're not feeling any symptoms, because everyone has different reactions to these things. Um, So the meta-analysis I mentioned earlier, which was published in the Journal of the Association of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease in Canada, estimates that asymptomatic transmission is not a major driver of the pandemic, might be as little as 10% of the transmission. And it is because they're not coughing, they're not spreading the virus by coughing it out and moving it around in the environment. But I think at the moment, it's not worth taking any chances. Certainly in Victoria and in New South Wales, we do have high numbers or high-ish numbers of cases which can't be linked 
to existing cases. They're not close contacts with these people. They don't live with those people. So even these, uh, you know, these little sniffles, the 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 um, even the seasonal. Uh, reactions to things that we know we're allergic to, it probably is worth going to get a test um, just to be on the safe side. Um, And I know, annoying as it might be, I've been for tests multiple times myself. Uh, It is annoying, but it is a lot less inconvenient than some of the alternatives. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Now, we would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can also find us on your friendly local podcast app. And if you had the opportunity on that app to give Give us a good rating and review, please do so. That will help other people to find our podcast. Or you can listen to us however you listen to this episode. At the same time, every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get lost Lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.